Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the Oakham Church Podcast. In this series, uh, we're looking at these themes of grace and peace as we walk our way through this letter written by Paul in prison in Rome to the house churches that are gathering in uh, the city of Ephesus. And today we find ourselves in chapter 2. So we'll read, without any further ado, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants and promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. So much good stuff there and we could uh, do multiple podcasts just on what Paul has covered within this uh, small chapter. 
Um, but I want to really hone in and focus on something that we're going to unpack a bit more on Sunday as well. And it's this little phrase in verse 4, and then it pops up again in verse 13 as well. Uh, Depending on what version you read or listen to, uh, it will have said, but, or however, or and yet. And it's this and yet that I want us to focus on. It's this and yet that is the kind of pivot point where all the things that Paul talks about before this phrase are completely undone and disregarded and done away with and even finished, to quote Jesus, on this point of but or however or and yet. There is very much a before time, then there is the and yet, and then there is an after. Paul uses all sorts of things about being far away and then brought near, or foreigners and now family, uh, of of the two becoming one. And it goes on and on all the time in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus. But it's this particular focus here in verse four. It says, but or and yet because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And yet, because of his great love for us, because God's love for us is so great, so immense, so world-changing, that all of that stuff before, all of those things that Paul talks about before the but don't matter anymore. They're done away with. And this is the pattern of God. This is the pattern of love. This is the pattern of mercy. This is the pattern of peace. This is the pattern, as Paul says here, of grace, because this is how God works in everyone. Just think about some examples. Noah. Noah was just a guy. Yes, he was um, seen as righteous, but he was just a guy. And if we read later on in the story, we see that Noah was a drunk. And yet God chose him and his family for this very special but very difficult task of building this ark. And because of that, because of that and yet... Noah gets to be part of this new thing that God is doing, this new creation. We get all of this new Genesis and Eden language following the flood. Noah was a drunk and yet God used him. Abraham thought he knew exactly how his life was going to go. He was going to be this nomadic shepherd, just like his father, just like his father, just like his father, wandering around, staring at the same sheep day in, day out, living in tents, moving from place to place, and that was his lot. And then his children, if he ever had any, would have the same future, and then their children would have the same future, and on and on and on. And at this point in the story, Abraham this is all he can see. This is Abraham's future as far as he can see is just a dead end. And yet, 
And yet God meets Abraham and God makes these promises. And from Abraham and from Abraham's faith and from Abraham's trust in the promises and the covenant that God made to him over and over again, we have an entire new nation that no longer wanders around just like Abraham thought his life was going to end up. Abraham and yet. Jacob. Jacob was the second born. Jacob had basically no rights. Jacob was always going to be playing second fiddle to his older twin brother. And that's got to hurt. Like literally, literally seconds, minutes maybe from being first born. And yet Esau pips him to the post and he always in his shadow. Esau is his dad's favourite. Esau is the big one, the strong one, the successful one, the powerful one. Esau can go and hunt with his dad and play sports and do all the stuff that he that, that Jacob probably wished that he could do, but Jacob was built differently. That wasn't Jacob's thing. Jacob was smaller. Jacob was weaker. Jacob spent more time with his mom. Jacob spent more time around doing more domesticated things. Jacob perhaps looked longingly at one day maybe being able to be like Esau. But we're told that Jacob uses what he has. Jacob uses his mind. Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a cheat. Jacob is a liar. And Jacob uses that to try and take what he thinks he should be his in the first place, trying to steal the birthright, trying to steal the blessings, trying to steal all the things that he sees his older brother getting that he thinks, I should have that. And yet, and yet God takes this kind of slimy, weaselly trickster, this liar, this deceiver, this heel grabber. God takes that man and and renames him Israel and he gets to continue in this line of this family. We have Rahab in the walls of Jericho. Rahab is a, to put it, put it politely, Rahab is a, a woman of the night and she basically sees this as, this is her life. She's going to be um, living to serve men for the rest of her life. And the only way that she can make any kind of um, any kind of means for her family and, and remain relatively safe within the walls of this city of Jericho is to continue to live in this lifestyle. But somewhere in this story, we see an and yet. Somewhere in, we, in this story, we get a but. And yet, because God, of God's great love for Rahab, he takes her life and he uses her to help these spies to then her become engrafted into that family and to be safe and her and her household to be safe. And not just that, but to become a part of this line that will eventually lead us to Jesus. David. David was not the oldest in a very big family of bigger brothers who were all bigger and stronger and hairier and more successful. And, and here was David resigned to the fact that he was going to be this shepherd boy, this kind of lowest of the bunch, basically. He couldn't go off and do all the cool stuff that he saw his older brothers doing. He was resigned, very similar to Abraham, of staring at these sheep day in, day out. And yet... Here comes this anointing from Samuel 
and it is placed not upon these older brothers. But why? Because God looks at the heart, because God looks at what's inside of a person, not how they look on the outside, not where they fit in the social standing. And so God anoints David as the future king of Israel and arguably the most successful and the most famous king of the nation of Israel. Started off as a shepherd boy, and yet, here is David the king. Esther. Esther, a a Jewish woman in a foreign land, forced to deny her ethnicity, deny her Jewishness, change her name, hide her past, hide who she thinks she really is to try and fit in, to try and stay safe, ultimately gets grafted into this harem of the the Prince of Persia. And and now what is going to happen? And we see that and yet, almost Mordecai says it, doesn't he? You were made for such a time as this, that Esther was placed in exactly the right place at exactly the right time for this exact right situation so that she could influence this king in changing decisions and changing things so that the Jewish people could be saved. Jonah, Jonah's job description was a prophet. That was literally all he had to do. Listen for God's word and go and do what he said. Listen to what God told him to say and then go and say it. And Jonah doesn't want to give the message. Jonah doesn't want to go to the destination that God is sending him. And so Jonah runs away. Jonah hides. Jonah sleeps. Jonah cowers in the bottom of a boat. Jonah is thrown overboard into a storm. Jonah is swallowed by a fish. Even when Jonah is presented out of the fish to the very city of Nineveh where he was supposed to proclaim this message, he still only gives a very kind of half-baked message. And yet, even God can use that. A reluctant prophet who runs and hides and cowers and would rather drown himself and die or be swallowed by a fish than do this thing. And yet, even when he does it, drags his feet and mumbles his words. And yet, God uses that prophet, whether he likes it or not, and uses that prophet's message, whether he likes it or not. And we're told that over 120,000 people in that city of Nineveh repent and are saved that day. And yet, we could go on and on and on into the New Testament. Jesus himself choosing his disciples. We have fishermen who thought their dads fished, their dads' dads fished, their dads' dads' dads fished. They were fishing now or they were apprenticing to learn how to become fishermen and that they would fish. And then one day, if they were lucky enough to have children of their own, they would teach their sons how to fish and they would teach their sons how to fish. So every day would look the same. In the boats, cleaning the nets, catching fish, scraping by just about enough to make ends meet. And yet... Here comes this rabbi and says, follow me. Here comes this rabbi who says, I think you're better than this. Who says, I think you can do what I do. I think you can be what I am. Come follow me. And yet, 
Here even Paul himself, this apostle, writing these letters, started off as this very fundamentalist Jewish man, this, this Pharisee's Pharisee. It was, in fact, we're told in Acts, his job to go from place to place and find out these new church movements, these new followers of the way, these new people who were living lives trying to... to copy how they had heard about Jesus living their lives, going out to those communities and squashing them, persecuting them, punishing them, having them thrown into prison, even executing them. This is what Paul's job was. He was a bounty hunter. He was this militant Jewish fundamental guy who was going around and just scaring people out of following this new Jesus way. And yet... Here we have this same man now in a prison that he threw Christians in. Not just that, but in a prison because of this very Jesus and this very Jesus movement that he was trying to squash. Not just that, but writing letters to encourage these other Jesus movers to continue in their walk with God. And not just that, but writing these letters to these house groups that he helped to plant. He went from persecutor, he went from burning down churches to building them up. And yet. And all, as good as all these stories are in the Bible, it doesn't stop there. Because we're told that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. That God never changes. And if that's how God worked then, that's how God will work now. With you and with me today. So look at your life, look at your past. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter who you were, doesn't matter what's right in front of you now that you think, is this all there is? Is this my life? Is this my lot? Is this all that I've got to look forward to forever? And remember, and yet, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made you and me alive with Christ. Friends, grace and peace.